Section 4 of The Life of Charlemagne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Charlemagne by Notger the Stammerer. Translated by Arthur James Grant. Section 4. Book 1. Part 4. As Charles stayed in Rome for a few days, the Bishop of the Apostolic See called together all who would come from the neighboring districts, and then, in their presence and in the presence of all the knights of the unconquered Charles, he declared him to be Emperor and Defender of the Roman Church. Now Charles had no guess of what was coming, and, though he could not refuse what seemed to have been divinely preordained for him, Nevertheless, he received his new title with no show of thankfulness. For first he thought that the Greeks would be fired by greater envy than ever, and would plan some harm against the kingdom of the Franks, or at least would take greater precautions against a possible sudden attack of Charles to subdue their kingdom and add it to his own empire. And further, the magnanimous Charles recalled how ambassadors from the king of Constantinople had come to him and had told him that their master wished to be his loyal friend, and that if they became nearer neighbors, he had determined to treat him as his son and relieve the poverty of Charles from his resources, and how, upon hearing this, Charles was unable to contain any longer the fiery ardor of his heart and had exclaimed, Oh, would that pool were not between us, for then we would either divide between us the wealth of the East, or we would hold it in common. But the Lord, who is both the giver and the restorer of health, so showed his favor to the innocency of the blessed Leo, that he restored his eyes to be brighter than they were before that wicked and cruel cutting, except only that, in token of his virtue, a bright scar like a very fine thread marked his eyelids. The foolish may accuse me of folly, because just now I made Charles say that the sea, which that mighty emperor called playfully a little pool, lay between us and the Greeks. But I must tell my critics that at that date the Bulgarians and the Huns and many other powerful races barred the way to Greece with forces yet unattacked and unbroken. Soon afterwards, it is true, the most warlike Charles either hurled them to the ground, as he did the Slavs and the Bulgars, or else utterly destroyed them, as was the case with the Huns, that race of iron and adamant. And I will go on to speak of these exploits as soon as I have given a very slight account of the wonderful buildings which Charles, Emperor Augustus and Caesar, following the example of the all-wise Solomon built at Aix, either for God, or for himself, or for the bishops, abbots, counts, and all guests that came to him from all quarters of the world. When the most energetic Emperor Charles could rest a while, he sought not sluggish ease, but labored in the service of God. He desired, therefore, to build upon his native soil a cathedral finer even than the works of the Romans, and soon his purpose was realized. For the building thereof he summoned architects and skilled workmen from all lands beyond the seas, and above all he placed a certain knavish abbot, 
whose competence for the execution of such tasks he knew, though he knew not his character. When the August Emperor had gone on a certain journey, this abbot allowed any one to depart home who would pay sufficient money, and those who could not purchase their discharge, or were not allowed to return by their masters, he burdened with unending labors, as the Egyptians once afflicted the people of God. By such knavish tricks he gathered together a great mass of gold and silver and silken robes, and, exhibiting in his chamber only the least precious articles, he concealed in boxes and chests all the richest treasures. Well, one day there was brought to him on a sudden the news that his house was on fire. He ran in great excitement and pushed his way through the bursting flames into the strong room where his boxes, stuffed with gold, were kept. He was not satisfied to take one away, but would only leave after he had loaded his servants with a box apiece. And as he was going out, a huge beam, dislodged by the fire, fell on the top of him, and then his body was burnt by temporal and his soul by eternal flames. Thus did the judgment of God keep watch for the most religious Emperor Charles when his attention was withdrawn by the business of his kingdom. There was another workman, the most skilled of all in the working of brass and glass. Now this man, his name was Tancho, and he was at one time a monk of St. Gaul, made a fine bell, and the emperor was delighted with its tone. Then said that most distinguished but most unfortunate worker in brass, Lord Emperor, give orders that a great weight of copper be brought to me, that I may refine it and instead of tin, give me as much silver as I shall need, a hundred pounds at least, and I will cast such a bell for you that this will seem dumb in comparison to it. Then Charles, the most liberal of monarchs, who, if riches abounded, set not his heart upon them, readily gave the necessary orders, to the great delight of the knavish monk. He smelted and refined the brass, but he used not silver, but the purest sort of tin, and soon he made a bell, much better than the one that the emperor had formerly admired, and, when he had tested it, he took it to the emperor, who admired its exquisite shape, and ordered the clapper to be inserted, and the bell to be hung in the bell-tower. That was soon done and then the warden of the church, the attendants, and even the boys of the place tried one after the other to make the bell sound. But all was in vain. And so at last the knavish maker of the bell came up, seized the rope, and pulled at the bell. When, lo and behold, down from on high came the brazen mass, fell on the very head of the cheating brass founder killed him on the spot, and passed straight through his carcass and crashed to the ground, carrying his bowels with it. When the aforementioned weight of silver was found, the most righteous Charles ordered it to be distributed among the poorest servants of the palace. Now, it was a rule at that time that if the imperial mandate had gone out that any task was to be accomplished, whether it was the making of bridges, or ships, or causeways, or the cleansing, or paving, or filling up of muddy roads, the counts might execute the less important work by the agency of their deputies or servants. But for the greater enterprises, 
and especially such as were of an original kind, no duke or count, no bishop or abbot could possibly get himself excused. The arches of the great bridge at Mainz bear witness to this, for all Europe, so to speak, laboured at this work in orderly cooperation. And then the knavery of a few rascals who wanted to steal merchandise from the ships that passed underneath destroyed it. If any churches within the royal domain wanted decorating with carved ceilings or wall paintings, the neighboring bishops and abbots had to take charge of the task. But if new churches had to be built, then all bishops, dukes, and counts, all abbots and heads of royal churches, and all who were in occupation of any public office had to work at it with never-ceasing labor, from its foundations to its roof. You may see the proof of the emperor's skill in the cathedral at Aix, which seems a work half-human and half-divine. You may see it in the mansions of the various dignitaries, which, by Charles's device, were built round his own palace in such a way that from the windows of his chamber he could see all who went out or came in, and what they were doing, while they believed themselves free from observation. You may see it in all the houses of his nobles, which were lifted on high from the ground in such a fashion that beneath them the retainers of his nobles, and the servants of those retainers, and every class of man, could be protected from rain or snow, from cold or heat, while at the same time they were not concealed from the eyes of the most vigilant Charles. But I am a prisoner within my monastery walls, and your ministers are free, and I will therefore leave to them the task of describing the cathedral, while I return to speak of how the judgment of God was made manifest in the building of it. The most careful Charles ordered certain nobles of the neighborhood to support with all their power the workmen whom he had set to their task, and to supply everything that they required for it. Those workmen who came from a distance he gave in charge to a certain Lutfried, the steward of his palace, telling him to feed and clothe them, and also most carefully to provide anything that was wanting for the building. The steward obeyed these commands for the short time that Charles remained in that place, but after his departure neglected them altogether, and by cruel tortures collected such a mass of money from the poor workmen that Dis and Pluto would require a camel to carry his ill-gotten gains to hell. Now this was found out in the following way. The most glorious Charles used to go to lauds at night in a long and flowing cloak, which is now neither used nor known. Then, when the morning chant was over, he would go back to his chamber and dress himself in his imperial robes. All the clerks used to come ready dressed to the nightly office, and then they would wait for the emperor's arrival and for the celebration of mass, either in the church or in the porch, which then was called the outer court. Sometimes they would remain awake, or if any one had need of sleep, he would lean his head on his companion's breast. Now one poor clerk, who used often to go to Lutfried's house to get his clothes, rags I ought to call them, washed and mended, was sleeping with his head on a friend's knees when he saw in a vision a giant, taller than the adversary of St. Anthony, come from the king's court and hurry over the bridge that spanned a little stream to the house of the steward 
and he led with him an enormous camel, burdened with baggage of inestimable value. He was, in his dream, struck with amazement, and asked the giant who he was, and whither he wished to go. And the giant made answer, I come from the house of the king, and I go to the house of Lutfried, and I shall place Lutfried on these packages, and I shall take him and them down with me to hell. Thereupon the clerk woke up in a fright, lest Charles should find him sleeping. He lifted up his head, and urged the others to wakefulness, and cried, Here I pray you my dream. I seem to see another Polyphemus, who walked on the earth, and yet touched the stars, and passed through the Ionian Sea without wetting his sides. I saw him hasten from the royal court to the house of Lutfried with a laden camel, and when I asked the cause of his journey, he said, I am going to put Lutfried on top of the load, and then take him to hell. The story was hardly finished, when there came from that house, which they all knew so well, a girl who fell at their feet, and asked them to remember her friend Lutfried in their prayers. And when they asked the reason for her words, she said, My lord, he went out but now in good health, and as he stayed a long time we went in search of him, and found him dead. When the emperor heard of his sudden death, and was informed by the workmen and his servants of his grasping avarice, he ordered his treasures to be examined. They were found to be of priceless worth. And when the emperor, after God the greatest of judges, found by what wickedness they had been collected, he gave this public judgment. Nothing of that which was gained by fraud must go to the liberation of his soul from purgatory. Let his wealth be divided among the workmen of this our building, and the poorer servants of our palace. Now I must speak of two things which happened in that same place. There was a deacon who followed the Italian custom, and resisted the course of nature, for he went to the baths and had himself closely shaved, polished his skin, cleaned his nails, and had his hair cut as short as if it had been done by a lathe. Then he put on linen and a white robe, and then, because he must not miss his turn, or rather desiring to make a fine show, he proceeded to read the gospel before God and his holy angels, and in presence of the most watchful king, his heart in the meantime being unclean, as events were to show. For while he was reading, a spider came down from the ceiling by a thread, hooked itself on to the deacon's head, and then ran up again. The most observant Charles saw this happen a second and a third time, but pretended not to notice it, and the clerk, because of the emperor's presence, dare not keep off the spider with his hand, and moreover did not know that it was a spider attacking him, but thought that it was merely the tickling of a fly. So he finished the reading of the gospel, and also went through the rest of the office. But when he left the cathedral he soon began to swell up, and died within an hour. But the most scrupulous Charles, inasmuch as he had seen his danger and had not prevented it, thought himself guilty of manslaughter, and did public penance. Now the most glorious Charles had in his suite a certain clerk who was unsurpassed in every respect, and of him that was said which was never said of any other mortal man, 
for it was said that he excelled all mankind in knowledge of both sacred and profane literature, in song, whether ecclesiastical or festive, in the composition and rendering of poems, and in the sweet fullness of his voice and in the incredible pleasure which he gave. Other men have had drawbacks to compensate for their excellences. For Moses, the lawgiver filled with wisdom by the teaching of God, complains nevertheless that he is not eloquent but slow of speech and of a slow tongue, and sent therefore Joshua to take counsel with Eleazar, the high priest, who by the authority of God who dwelt within him commanded even the heavenly bodies. And our Master Christ did not allow John the Baptist to work any miracle while in the body, though he bare witness that, Among them that are born of women there hath not arisen a greater than he. And he bade Peter revere the wisdom of Paul, though Peter, by the revelation of the Father, recognized him and received from him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he allowed John, his best-loved disciple, to fall into so great a terror that he did not dare to come to the place of his sepulchre, though weak women paid many visits to it. But as the scriptures say, To him that hath shall be given, and those who know from whom they have the little which they possess succeed, while he who knows not the giver of his possessions, or if he knows it gives not due thanks to the giver, loses all. For while this wonderful clerk was standing in friendly fashion near the most glorious emperor, suddenly he disappeared. The unconquered Emperor Charles was dumbfounded at so unheard of and incredible an occurrence, but after he had made the sign of the cross, he found in the place where the clerk had stood something that seemed to be a foul-smelling coal which had just ceased to burn. The mention of the trailing garment that the Emperor wore at night has diverted us from his military array. Now, the dress and equipment of the old Franks was as follows. Their boots were gilt on the outside and decorated with laces three cubits long. The thongs round the legs were red, and under them they wore upon their legs and thighs linen of the same color, artistically embroidered. The laces stretched above these linen garments and above the crossed thongs, sometimes under them and sometimes over them, now in front of the leg and now behind. Then came a rich linen shirt, and then a buckled sword-belt. The great sword was surrounded first with a sheath, then with a covering of leather, and lastly with a linen wrap hardened with shining wax. The last part of their dress was a white or blue cloak in the shape of a double square, so that when it was placed upon the shoulders it touched the feet in front and behind but at the side hardly came down to the knees. In the right hand was carried a stick of apple wood with regular knots, strong and terrible. A handle of gold or silver decorated with figures was fastened to it. I myself am lazy and slower than a tortoise and so never got into Frankland. But I saw the king of the Franks in the monastery of St. Gall, glittering in the dress that I have described but the habits of man change. And when the Franks in their wars with the Gauls saw the latter proudly wearing little striped cloaks, they dropped their national customs and began to imitate the Gauls. 
At first the strictest of emperors did not forbid the new habit, because it seemed more suitable for war. But when he found that the Frisians were abusing his permission and were selling these little cloaks at the same price as the old large ones, he gave orders that no one should buy from them at the usual price anything but the old cloaks, broad, wide, and long. And he added, What is the good of those little napkins? I cannot cover myself with them in bed, and when I am on horseback I cannot shield myself with them against wind and rain. In the preface to this little work I said I would follow three authorities only. But as the chief of these, Werenbert, died seven days ago, and today, the 13th of May, we, his bereaved sons and disciples, are going to pay solemn honor to his memory, here I will bring this book to an end concerning the piety of Lord Charles and his care of the church, which has been taken from the lips of this same clerk, Werenbert. The next book which deals with the wars of the most fierce Charles is founded on the narrative of Werenbert's father, Adalbert. He followed his master, Kerold, in the Hunnish, Saxon, and Slavic wars, and when I was quite a child, and he a very old man, I lived in his house and he used often to tell me the story of these events. I was most unwilling to listen and would often run away, but in the end, by sheer force, he made me hear. End of Book One End of Section Four